You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. By 1884, James G. Blaine had been defeated twice for his party's nomination. His reputation both thrusted him to the top of consideration for his party's nomination for the presidency and also knocked him off of it in many minds. Too much perceived corruption for some, but Garfield was dead. Blaine was his friend and Secretary of State, the man who was in the railroad station with him when he was shot, the man who was conducting American foreign policy. After battles with President Chester Arthur, he left the Secretary of State's job, and now with nothing to do, but with plenty of eyes on him, Blaine wrote a book. His opponents raised an eyebrow. Blaine, the politician, writing a book? What was Slippery Jim up to now? But in 1883, it was a new concept, a public official's memoir. Grant, with Mark Twain's help, would also write his. And it was very successful. Blaine's 20 years in Congress would make good money for him and keep his name afloat. In it, He praised nearly everyone. He even said good things about Roscoe Conkling, his old rival from New York State. And why not? Conkling could not rival him anyway. A path to a nomination, if he wanted it, was pretty clear. No one was going to vote for Conkling after Conkling had left the Senate in New York and then forced the legislator to vote him back in, and they did not in an embarrassment. He was out of national politics. Except this. Here's the problem. The Republican Party was losing their electoral advantage from Reconstruction. They no longer could rely on, as they had in 1876, getting a few southern states that had Reconstruction governments, as they had with uh, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida in that election. Those were not GOP states anymore. Hayes got the last of it. Garfield won a squeaker without winning any southern states, forfeiting them all to the Democrat, Winfield Scott Hancock. And now Governor Grover Cleveland of New York, the likely Democratic nominee, was popular there in New York. This was going to be a tough jigsaw puzzle electorally for Republicans. And at first glance, it appears Blaine did not want the nomination of his party, but he wanted to stay influential, perhaps. So he writes General William Tecumseh Sherman. He decides that Sherman would win, and for his running mate, the Republicans should pick Robert Todd Lincoln, son of the deceased president. What a ticket it would be. He wrote a Cincinnati editor with some honesty. I cannot win New York, and we must nominate Sherman and Lincoln. I cannot carry that state, and we must win that state. This leak to the press gets end to the talk among newspaper men, and then he sends a letter to Sherman. Confidential, it is marked, from Blaine to Sherman. My dear general, this letter requires no answer. After reading it, put it in your secret door. 
or give it to the flames. Something uh, Blaine liked to do with his letters. He doesn't ask him if he wants to run. He tells him, you, Sherman, might be nominated. As if he just didn't tell a major editor who was going to spread the rumors. You, sir, might be nominated. And if so, he must treat it like being drafted by the army and not refuse it. Do not answer this, Blaine says. Well, Sherman does answer as soon as he gets the letter. Immediately writes back to Blaine, I will not in any event accept a nomination. And says, Americans should leave old soldiers to the peace they earned. Lacking a stand-in, Blaine decides to go for it himself. There's no one else. Arthur, the incumbent, was still too controversial with Republicans. He was connected in a perverse way to the assassin. I mean, not really connected to the assassin, but Garfield's assassin says Arthur's now president when he shot someone. It's terrible. And Arthur was associated with the other faction of Conkling's faction, very opposed to Blaine. Even in New York, Arthur's home state, Blaine gets the support of that delegation. But there is another choice, a Vermont senator named George Edmund. He gets some votes. He's seen as strong on civil service reform, where Blaine obviously will not be. Blaine wants to be able to appoint who he can to, to, to use the patronage machine as president. Edmund wants to curb this to improve the image of his party. And Edmund is boosted largely due to the effect of a Harvard graduate and New York Assemblyman leader, Theodore Roosevelt, young and active. Roosevelt goes to the National Convention and tries to give Blaine a third nomination loss. For chairman, Blaine forces want Powell Clayton. But Theodore Roosevelt gets the whole convention behind John Lynch, who is an African-American Reconstruction congressman from the state of Mississippi. He becomes the convention chair. But having the chair of the GOP convention wasn't enough. Everyone could agree for a much-revered figure. But that doesn't mean they're all going to agree on a presidential candidate. Roosevelt then tries to delay the convention. And Blaine supporters, not knowing what a future hero he would become, start shouting at this man who's talking too much. Get down, you young fool! Eventually, T.R. had to. And Blaine it was. But Blaine was right. He couldn't carry New York. And he wouldn't win the 1884 election. I mean, one of the reasons, among many, that he loses New York is that the cartoonists were against him. Thomas Nast, whose cartoons had ridiculed Tilden Hancock, Seymour, all of the Democrats, pointed out that they were too closely connected to Southern rebels. Now they turned their ink against Blaine in this election, against one of their own party. He was a, a Nast, a never-Blainer, or as they called him, a mugwump, Republicans who supported Governor Cleveland. One showed him tattooed with all of his sins before a GOP Greek chorus-like assemblage. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
Another showed him cynically trying to get Irish votes with recently inspired anti-British positions that Blaine had suddenly developed. Another entitled the Belshazzar Blaine and the Money Kings referred to a dinner that Blaine attended at Delmonico's with big money people in New York that got a little bit too much attention. Blaine and the Fat Money Cats sitting at a table where a poor young woman could not afford to eat, had her hands extended out, and the Fat Cats would give her nothing and laughed at her. Such were the cartoons that were shown. Blaine was doomed. Association with the financiers, and after a preacher made an anti-Catholic comment, rum, Romanism, and rebellion in the closing days of the election, just when so much of the Irish vote in New York was going for him and some of the Tammany Hall leaders. Kelly was supporting him on the sly. Plus, he was losing because of John State John, the prohibitionist vote. Blaine would lose that in a squeaker. But when he got the nomination, something interesting happens. General Sherman writes Blaine a letter. Ah, I see that I was indeed your competition for that convention, and you've won. Congratulations. General Sherman was sending Blaine a message. Hey, I may not be the great politician you are, but I'm no dummy. I see what you did there. You sounded me out because you did want the nomination. You wanted to be sure I wasn't running. Or at least that's what Sherman thought. Blaine had to test out Sherman before he ran, try the war hero first, either get him to run and be kind of a puppet government or test him and make sure he's not going to be competition for you. A little known situation occurred in the 1900 election, or more to the point, did not occur in the 1900 election when Admiral Dewey, fresh out of being a naval hero of the Spanish-American War when inspired by Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, his fleet was sent to the Philippines to secure that Spanish colony for the Americans. When Dewey returned to the U.S. with his fleet sailing around and starting to get all of the talk, the sight of his fleet in San Francisco had the whole nation talking. Could we run Dewey, who was known to be a Democrat? Could we run him for president? Even McKinley tells friends, He's done with the office anyway, after one term. I would be the happiest man in America if I could get out of it in 1901. But perhaps that was just 19th century claptrap talk that you had to give to not seem so, in thinking yourself so important. But McKinley both developed a rival from the Spanish-American War, but also benefited from the renewed military spirit in the country. McKinley was a Civil War general, and he marched with thousands of soldiers in khakis fresh from the Philippines through the streets of Pittsburgh in victory and in song. There is no nobler death, McKinley said, than to die for one's country. Death was present, for the Philippine insurgency was sending more notes from home to families about their loved ones, 
long after the Spanish-American War was supposed to be over. We're into 1900, and there's still soldiers fighting and dying over this Philippine insurrection, where when we took the Philippines from the Spanish, and the Spanish surrendered to the Americans, not to the on-the-ground insurgents, the insurgents started attacking the Americans. They wanted the country for themselves to be independent. Even Republicans weren't happy with this arrangement. There was a lot of criticism. South Dakota's Richard Pettigrew attacked the president's imperialistic policy. George Horror, Massachusetts Republican and respected figure, asked to see documents on Philippine policy to see how it was crafted. And Speaker Thomas Reed opposed annexation of the islands off the Asian continent, gave a speech about home rule being essential for liberty for all nations, directly attacking his party's administration. But McKinley would catch one break. Admiral Dewey would say, as Sherman did, a sailor has no place in politics and refuse any party's nomination. McKinley had two other surprising opponents in the 1900 election. I mean, not people running against him, but people speaking out against him. One was the author Mark Twain. I have seen that we intend not to free, but to subjugate. And so I am an anti-imperialist, Twain wrote. Twain's books at this point in 1900 were very successful. He was America's greatest writer. America should not have its talons in any other land. Twain said, and Twain wasn't the only one, the new Anti-Imperialist League formed with half a million members. Andrew Carnegie, labor activist Samuel Gompers, an African-American writer and spokesperson W.E. Du Bois, made up this group of strange bedfellows. When they found out that Twain also agreed with them, they made him the vice president of the organization. Somebody else had converted to anti-imperialism too. William Jennings Bryan, Democratic candidate. Democrats once again offered the nomination that they had to him, they had offered to him in 1896. And this time they said, can you just not talk about silver and gold? Just talk about other issues. I can imagine this conversation. It just scares the hell out of the East, Bryan. Don't do it. Bryan said, no, I won't take the nomination if I can't talk about silver and money issues. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. But he decided and agreed to add a new issue, anti-imperialism, to his repertoire. We condemn the Philippine policy it has put the United States in the false and un-American position of crushing efforts for self-government. He would speak on his blitzkrieg through the United States on its train. Now, the interesting thing is that Bryan's is really a conversion because... Brian was behind and supporting uh, America getting involved in Cuba. So it's really only on the Philippine issue that is a bridge too far for Brian getting involved in something in the Pacific. On Cuba, 
he had supported it. He had to point it out and gave McKinley a lot of grief um, during his presidency about the Cuban rebels and what we were doing to help them and pushing that. And actually, in that way, Brian was partially responsible, along with many other people, including the, the Hearst papers and the Pulitzer papers, for starting the Spanish-American War. But on the Philippines issue, he was opposed, and this is what he ran on in 1900. For Mark Hanna, senator from Ohio and considered to be the man behind McKinley, there's a lot of scholarship that says that's not really true. But many see him kind of as his Karl Rove. I don't know, McKinley, you know, also was a very smart guy and a good politician. For him, imperialism was a non-issue, a bugaboo, a humbug. We, the American people, are not going to devolve to an empire. Can you see William McKinley as an emperor? That's not going to happen. But there's more. Hannah, you know, he's kind of like the Dick Cheney. He's like a lightning rod for all the attacks. And the last thing you want if you're McKinley is for him to go out and take the stump. And people tell him, please don't do this, Hannah. You're a liability to McKinley. People think you're like the brain behind the man and all of that. And Hannah's like, no, you can't stop me. McKinley's the president. He can't go out and stump. We're going to have Brian out there talking from the back of a train at every little town. I'm going to take the stump myself. And he does. Another one hitting the stump was a new candidate for vice president. Garrett Hobart had died in office, and so Theodore Roosevelt was nominated for vice president. He hits the stump. We are a nation of men, not weaklings, he said in response to Brian's issues. Hannah's speeches would actually go much better than planned. And wanting to really injure Brian, he hit him where it hurts. He went to his home state of Nebraska and made several speeches there. Brian would lose his home state in the election of 1900. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.